birth announcements. They tell us a lot about a person, don't they? So just take the royal birth of Prince George, born just over uh, a little over two years ago to William and Kate. It doesn't matter that he was to be a distant third in line to the throne. At the news that Kate was pregnant, a nation sprang into action. Journalists covered every stage of her pregnancy. Photographers scrambled for shots of that infamous baby bump. And when Kate was hospitalized at 12 weeks with a condition that I wrote down but I can't pronounce, a nation held its breath in agonizing silence. Now, as the couple entered the hospital on the day of the delivery, media outlets descended from across the world, though for hours there was really nothing to report. Coverage continued round the clock as if it was presidential election night. He was born to a truly global spectacle. Gun salutes signaled his birth in the capitals of Bermuda and the UK, New Zealand, and Canada. The bells of Westminster Abbey and Anglican churches across the globe rang in honor of his birth. Iconic landmarks in the Commonwealth realms were were illuminated in blue to signal the birth of a baby boy. The celebration, it even spilled over into the economy. Following his birth, Retail sales jumped to their highest rate in over seven years. And it became dubbed the Prince George effect. Photos revealed the maker of the baby blanket for that boy as he was taken out to the car. And it created an internet frenzy. And the maker of that baby blanket, their website crashed within hours. A famous Welsh composer wrote a lullaby for the prince. Commemorative coins were issued in his honor in the UK and in the Canada and in Australia. There wasn't a soul in the land who didn't know something about the birth of this royal child. It was a regal affair with all the pomp and the pageantry that one expects with a royal birth. All this for a baby boy who just might someday be king. Well, this being Christmas and thinking about births, right, reminds us of another birth, the birth of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. And it begs the question, right, what is Jesus' birth announcement? Right, what is his birth announcement Tell us about him. What do the circumstances surrounding his birth reveal to us about who Jesus is and about what he came to do? Well, to answer that, I want us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Luke to chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the pew for you, you can find it, I think, on page 857. Page 857. And if you've come and you're a visitor and you don't own a Bible, I want you to take that Bible with you as you go. I want you to keep reading the story that we're going to begin this morning in Luke chapter 2. Feel free to do that. That's our gift from us to you, early Christmas. All right. 
But by way of background, as you open to Luke chapter 2, Luke uh, is one of the four Gospels, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And there weren't four accounts because there were sort of four conflicting stories with four competing narratives. Now, there are four accounts because each author is viewing the life and the ministry of Jesus through a particular lens. So Matthew, being a Jew, is going to present Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Mark is going to present him as the suffering servant who calls his people to suffer alongside him. Luke, now Luke was a Gentile, right? He wasn't Jewish, unlike the rest of the New Testament authors. And he's going to present Jesus as the Savior of the world. One who would be a blessing not just to Israel, but to the nations, as God had promised Abraham so many millennia ago. And in addition to being a Gentile, we know that Luke was a, a doctor, Colossians 4, 14. Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician, and thus he would have been cultured. He would have been well-educated. He also likely would have been a slave. For in the first century Roman Greco, Greco-Roman world, most doctors and architects and educators, right, a lot of those professionals, so those professionals, uh, that we think of today, many of them were slaves in the Roman Empire. And he was a historian. So if you look to Luke chapter 1, maybe you have to flip back a page, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. This is how he begins his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right, so unlike the other gospel writers, Luke wasn't among the 12 disciples. And to get to the truth of what really happened and who Jesus was, right, Luke needed sources. He needed sources. And where did he find his sources? Well, in AD 57, he's traveling with Paul and he's arriving in Jerusalem. And yet Paul, if you know the story in Acts 21 and Acts 24, Paul was quickly imprisoned. And while Luke was waiting two years for Paul's release, he's traveling about the country. He's visiting sites. He's tracking down sources. He's talking to eyewitnesses, people like Jesus' own mother Mary. And if you've read these first two chapters of Luke, you know that he must have spent many a long hour with Mary discussing those early days of Jesus' life. Luke is not the stuff of make-believe. Luke understands himself to be carefully recording what actually happened. Now, sometimes gospel writers are presented by uh, sort of as by secular skeptics as pretenders, you know, as as charlatans, as these power-hungry religious fanatics out to make a name for themselves. But by the time of Luke's writing, Christians are being persecuted. The tide is turning against them. If you are out to make a buck off Jesus, maybe gain a little political favor, right? that gig is long past. That's not why you're writing a gospel. Luke knew, along with the other gospel writers, that what they wrote could get them killed, and yet they still wrote it because they believe 
What was contained in these chapters was the difference between life and death. And thus they were willing to give up their own lives so that others would read and hear and understand. And what's interesting, if you read the accounts of first century detractors, those who disagreed with these Christians, they weren't denying the accounts in the Gospels. They weren't saying, hey, you know what, I was there. Like, that never happened. This is all a farce. It's all make-believe. No, they weren't, they weren't denying what happened. When you read the first century accounts, they were merely giving a different meaning to it. They weren't debating what happened. They were debating the meaning of what happened. What did the event say really about who Jesus was? And beginning, it all begins with his birth. Right? What does his birth reveal about Jesus? And it begins his birth story in chapter 2, right, verses 1 to 7. And if you look there at chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, we learn that Caesar, Augustus, rules in Rome, Quirinius is governor, a census is to be taken for tax purposes, and thus Mary and Joseph are forced to travel to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. Luke is situating the story in history, and in Roman history even. Now, we're tempted to think of Mary and Joseph as but poor puppets caught up in the sort of politics of Rome's empire building. But God is moving them to Bethlehem, where Micah prophesied, as Ryan read, Micah prophesied that the Savior was to be born. And thus, like we saw with Pharaoh the last two weeks in Exodus, we're reminded that though Augustus is Rome's sovereign, There is only one sovereign who saves, and he will do so in the most unlikely of ways. But what's remarkable, I think, about the birth story is that the formal story, it takes all of two verses. His birth, two verses, right there, beginning in chapter 2, verse 6. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's his story right there, all of two verses. We don't read of a a donkey. We don't read of Mary's quickening contractions. We don't read of a frantic search by night for an inn and and some surly innkeeper. That makes for great movies, and it's possible some of that's true, but that's really all just conjecture. And it's just a reminder of what we've been seeing again these past weeks in Exodus. The Bible isn't merely concerned with what happened, but the meaning of what happens. God acts, and then what he does is he reveals what's behind those actions. And the revelation of what just happened, that's what we get in chapter 2, verses 8 to 21. The revelation, the significance behind the birth of this baby boy. We see that in chapter 2, verses 8 to 21. So what do we learn about Jesus from this birth announcement? Well, let's read it, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. All right, so to get behind the meaning here of this sort of birth announcement, I want to ask a few questions. We're going to ask a few questions. And the first question, they're going to serve as our points. First question is this. Who did Jesus come for? And who did Jesus come for? And as we look at the text, most immediately, Jesus came for shepherds. That's what we see. He came for the shepherds. In verse 8, the camera, it, it, it shifts away from the couple and the newborn to the hills a couple of miles outside Bethlehem to a group of shepherds out tending their flocks at night. Now, some suggest that the fact that they were out at night means it would have been warmer. It might have been sort of spring, maybe even early summer. But it's, it's actually hard to know for sure. That's possible. But you can imagine them, the shepherds, out in the cool night air, alone on the hills, watching constellations lazily drift by. It would have been a silent night, except maybe for some rustling sheep. Right? Their eyelids would have been heavy with sleep. And then, in that barren and dark landscape, explodes a flurry of divine activity. An angel of the Lord, appears to them. And the glory of the Lord shines around them. And we got to stop here and recognize something for just a moment. You know, we live in an age of IMAX 3D projection, you know, Dolby Digital 7-channel surround sound, right? That's the world we live in. Our eardrums are accustomed to violent vibrations. Our eyes inebriated from images flashing across the screen or the iPad or the phone, right? We're desensitized to sights and sounds. But think of these shepherds. Think of the shepherds. They're not longing for the latest intergalactic creation of J.J. Abrams. They're not looking for that. They're not in line trying to buy tickets. Their minds aren't numb to sounds and images. They've never heard a car or a gun or a halftime fireworks display. They didn't grow up on iPods and flat screen TVs. Maybe, maybe they had heard the sound of a trumpet 
and a temple. So when the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them, they would have been awestruck. They don't have categories for such things. This is sensory overload for anyone, certainly for these shepherds. And evidently it was a terrifying sight. For we read in verse 9 that they were what? They were filled with great fear. Not just a little fear. Filled with great fear. They weren't curious. They weren't mildly concerned. No, something about the sight of this angel paralyzed them with fear. Friends, this was not a precious moments kind of angel. Not one of those angels, you know, those doe-eyed, chubby little guys that look about as imposing as the Pillsbury Doughboy. Not one of those angels. Now, when people come face to face with messengers of the living God, they got to change their pants after that. Yet the angel, and we're not told who the angel is, twice an angel Gabriel showed up to Zechariah. Wants to marry. It could have been, it could have been Gabriel. We're not told. But the angel says, fear not. For behold, I bring you. I bring you good news of great joy. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day a savior. Right? The shepherds are the recipients of this good news. Unto them is born a savior. Now we think shepherds and maybe we think Abraham or Moses or David. Maybe we think respectable people and a hardworking sort of respectable profession. But by the time of the first century, shepherds were despised. Their contact with animals meant they couldn't keep the ceremonial law that was so important to many Jews. They developed a rather dubious reputation for mistaking, you know, out there in the fields what was yours with what's mine. And thus they were actually prohibited from offering testimony in a court of law. The only people lower than shepherds were lepers and tax collectors. They were cultural outcasts. They were on the fringe of society. And I struggle to think of a modern-day example of this, but in today's terms, it might be like an angel of the Lord showing up at a convention for used car salesmen on parole. point is, the angel of the Lord, he's not showing up at the West Wing or on the steps of the Supreme Court or out at some estates on East Hampton or on Hollywood Boulevard. He didn't first reveal himself to the elites and to the privileged of society. He started with lowly, despised shepherds. Now, sometimes we think God's for the good people. We think he's for the good people. But Jesus' birth is teaching us something. God didn't come first to the respectable, to the morally upright. He came first to the morally suspect, to the outcast, to the downtrodden, those who were often overlooked and forgotten. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today. You look around, you're thinking, I'm not like these people. I'm not like these people. My, my life is a mess. I've done things I'm ashamed of. You know, I'm an idiot. I never should have come here. How could I ever be accepted by God? But if that's you this morning, take comfort. 
Because you have already seen Christmas is for you. Christmas is for you. This church is for you. We sing, right, of who's been naughty or nice. As if God only comes for the good guys. But here's the thing. In the Bible, there are no truly good guys. We're all broken. Now, some of us have become practice experts at concealing our brokenness and our sin. But truth be told, we are all a moral mess. Every single one of us. And God delights to reveal himself to those who are desperate and are needy. The self-assured may have convinced themselves, right, they don't need God. But to the truly desperate and the needy, God delights to reveal himself to people like that. And if that's you, he delights to reveal himself to you. That's the, the message of Christmas. And it's a message that is tailored just for you. But the message wouldn't be just for the shepherds. They may have been the first to hear of it, but we read the good news of great joy was to be for all the people, for all the people. Now, we hear all the people and we think everyone, nationwide, worldwide. But the way Luke uses that phrase people, he'll use it consistently throughout his gospel, actually referring to Israel. He'll use it referring to Israel. Jesus came for Israel came for the people of Israel, not just shepherds. He came to his own people. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 15, 24? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus wasn't trying to conduct revivals in Rome. He wasn't trying to fill amphitheaters in Greece. He spent his entire existence in the tiny confines of Israel preaching in synagogues and traveling around the Judean countryside. He wanted the people of Israel, God's old covenant people, to know that he was the promised Messiah. He was the promised blessing that had been given to Abraham in Genesis 12. He was David's greater son from 2 Samuel 7. He was that suffering servant of Isaiah 53. All the prophetic strands of the Old Testament that John talked about when he introduced Micah, all those prophetic strands would come together in Jesus. So if you've come this morning and you're Jewish, I've met some at the back door. They come, you come from a Jewish background, a Jewish context. Jesus was your Messiah before he was ever mine. He was your Messiah before he was ever mine. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. To the Jew first. Which means you can stop waiting. Your Messiah has come. You don't have to wait. You don't have to continue looking. And yet, like the prophet Isaiah, he would come to a people who would not hear. Or they would hear, rather, but they would not understand. To a people who would see Isaiah 6 but never perceive That's the kind of people like Isaiah that Jesus would come to. But if you're here and you've come from a Jewish background this morning, don't make the same mistake that so many of the Jews made in the Gospels. He can be your Messiah. He came first to be your Messiah. 
But I want us to ask another question. All right, what does the birth announcement of Jesus tell us about the kind of man he would be? Second, what kind of man would Jesus be? What does this birth announcement tell us? What kind of man would he be? That's the question. Secondly, what kind of man would Jesus be? And as you read over and over, one thing's clear. First, he was a commoner. First, he was a commoner. And that's part of what's so striking about this birth narrative. We expect God's king to be born into some palatial estate, you know, some castle with servants at his side and, and a crib of gold and embroidered blankets and the finest silk. That's what we'd expect of a king, particularly God's king. But there's a word that's repeated throughout this narrative, and I don't know if you picked it up, but it's that word manger. Three different times. We see it up in verse 7. Then it's repeated there in verse 12 by the angels. We see it again there in verse 16. And it's repeatedly highlighted for one reason. It's highlighted in order that we might see, in the old sense of the word, the meanness, you know, the vulgarity, the commonality of Jesus' birth. Right? There were no attendants at his side, as would have been typical of a Jewish birth. We read up in verse 7 that Mary wrapped Jesus herself. She had to wrap him. His was a lonely birth, foreshadowing the kind of isolation he would know throughout his own ministry. And of course, what is a manger? We think of you know, cute, clean nativity scenes, but what is a manger? It is a feeding trough for farm animals. That's what it is. His cradle, it wasn't glistening with gold. Right, it was, it was coated with cud and dried saliva. That was his cradle. In that first breath, he wasn't inhaling the sweet sense of perfume, but the lingering stench of hot animal breath. That's the world he was born into. Now the mention of a feeding trough suggests he could have been born in a stable. Perhaps a cave. There were many sort of rocky crags and crevices and caves that would often serve as animal shelters around Bethlehem. He could have been born in a courtyard, you know, more out in the open, exposed to the elements. You know, the icy air whirling about them. Joseph, think of poor Joseph. Joseph bewildered, trembling, feeling helpless. Mary, frightened, fearful, fighting the pain alone in her birth. No soft bed. She had no family by her side. No nursemaids with warm washcloths. No attendants playing the harp. No swanky blanky, like nice Prince George. Just a few jagged swaddling cloths of coarse wool was all she had to wrap him with. There he lay, alone, amidst the noxious air of manure and excrement. Friends, at all points, to poverty, to obscurity, to rejection, no place for them in the inn reminds us of what Jesus would later say in Luke 9, 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here we're being introduced to the kind of life that Jesus would lead, one marked by dirt and by dust, by poverty and by rejection. His would be a hard life, a life familiar with suffering, 
I think one author put it well. He said, of all the children born that day, we are hard-pressed to find one with lower prospects. And of course, in the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day, the aspirations of all mortals was to become immortal, right? Men becoming gods. But God would do it backward. He would first himself become man. The king of kings would step off his throne only to climb bruised and bloodied into a stinking cesspool of animal excrement and human sin. Right? Such is the kind of man that Jesus would be. Such is the extent to which the Son of God was willing to go to save a sinful humanity. Right, But he wasn't just a commoner. He was certainly that, but he wasn't just that. He was even more importantly, he was a savior. He was a savior. That was the clear pronouncement of the angels there in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, Luke's Gentile audience, right, Theophilus was a, a Greek name, likely a Gentile. His Gentile audience would have been very familiar with this term savior because Caesar Augustus was himself on his own birthday hailed throughout the empire as the savior of the whole world. We have that in inscriptions throughout modern day Turkey. And so when The angels speak to these shepherds that Jesus was to be Savior. Rome would have bristled at that, at the thought that some lowly Jewish boy born in obscurity and filth could ever be hailed by anyone as a Savior. But it's no accident that 400 years have passed since the last prophet carried God's word to his people. 400 years of deafening silence as the people waited and as they cried out in bondage under their Roman oppressors. 400 years of what looked like promises forgotten. Just as it had been 400 years of Israel enslaved in Egypt, crying out for deliverer. And now, with this angelic announcement, we hear that the Savior has come, right? Exodus, again, preparing us for Christmas. And this time, Israel would be truly and finally set free. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was, you know, some combination of Spartacus meets William Wallace, you know, leading an oppressed, enslaved people out of their the bondage of that dominant foreign power. It doesn't mean, you know, Jesus is a man of the proletariat, you know, fighting against all of his bourgeois oppressors. He's not a religious Robin Hood who came to deliver us from the tyranny of unjust policies and political oppression, you know, out there. He didn't come to deliver us from what's out there. Jesus came, we see clearly, to deliver us from what's in here, from what's inside of us. You know, we sing of that in the opening line of one of my favorite hymns, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
Because the gospel writers understand that Israel was held captive to something much greater than Roman bondage. They were held captive to the eternal bondage of their own sin. And they, like you and like me, they needed to be set free. And this is the great riddle of the Old Testament. Because throughout the Bible, God is presented as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And yet he's also just And he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Both those things said to be true of God. How can they both be true? That's the riddle of the Old Testament that Jesus and the New Testament solves. And the answer will unfold as you keep reading the gospel. But we get a glimpse of that answer right here. For these shepherds, they were keeping their flock between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And such flocks would have been reserved for the temple sacrifices. There in the temple, the sins of the people would be symbolically laid upon a spotless lamb through the hands of a priest. The sins of the guilty transferred to that spotless, i.e. sinless lamb. Transferred to that lamb, and thus when the lamb was sacrificed, both mercy and judgment would meet. All right, so how does this help us solve the riddle? Well, God, in the Old Testament, he's always said to be the Savior of his people. Mary sang back in chapter 1, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And yet, if you look down at verse 21, just remind ourselves, what is the name given to Jesus? What is the name given to the the baby? Well, it says right there, I just said it, Jesus. That's the name given to the baby. A name that means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. These answers are helping to answer, or the angels rather, are helping to answer the riddle. Jesus, they're presenting Jesus even here as the sinless son of God. He is that sinless son of God. He would come to be that sacrificial lamb. The one who comes And John 1, to take away the sins of the world. He's the spotless lamb who suffered as a substitute in our place. There on the cross, justice and mercy finally meet. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the kind of savior that Jesus would be. That's why he came into the world. Right? He didn't finally come to free us from totalitarian regimes or to raise the minimum wage. Right? That's not why Jesus came. He came to do something much greater than that. He came to reconcile humanity back to God. He came to you, to me, to reconcile us to God. If, if you would renounce your sin, And you would rely upon Christ as your Savior. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is simply one who has renounced their sin and relies upon the death of Christ as that substitute for their sin. He is that scapegoat. He bears it for them. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's why Christ came into the world to be its Savior. But I want to ask one third and final question to help us understand 
this birth announcement, what would Jesus bring? What would Jesus bring? What would he bring? Would he bring a jump in retail sales like Prince George? You know, would he bring gun salutes and commemorative coins? What would he bring? He'd bring peace. He'd bring peace. That's what the angels declare there in verse 14. And peace would have been a word like Savior that would have been well known to Luke's Gentile audience. Because, of course, they were living in the days of what? Of the, of the Pax Romana, of Roman peace after centuries of war and aggression in which the temple of Rome's doors were kept open. Those doors were kept open whenever Rome was at war. For centuries, those doors were open. And yet now those doors were closed and meant to symbolize the fact that the Roman Empire knew peace and there was peace across the empire. At least that's what they boasted of. But it was no true peace, if you know your Roman history, but it was a peace enforced upon subjugated people by the blunt end of a sword. To millions, war and strife still raged. And yet after the angel announced the good news of the Savior's birth, we read there in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. In that moment, heaven burst open, and a host, literally an army of angels, well, they make a dive bomb for earth. I mean, can you imagine the scene? Angels marshaled by their ranks across the night sky. Stars eclipsed by dazzling displays of ethereal color. The helmed cherubim and sordid seraphim in glittering ranks with wings displayed. The stars with deep amaze stand fixed in steadfast gaze. That's how the poet John Milton described the scene. And yet when this heavenly army opened their mouths, it was not to utter a war cry, but an anthem. Heaven burst forth into song and earth reverberated in a heavenly surround sound. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Right? This was an angelic army paying homage to their king. It's exactly what it was. And oh, what it would have been like to witness earth electrified by the celestial voices of that great army. Right? DreamWorks could never do this justice. All because Jesus would bring peace. He would bring peace. Not a temporary peace between nations, but a lasting peace between sinful man and a holy God. Rome boasted of peace. And they boasted of having a savior. And yet these angels are declaring the truth that a king had come and a savior had been born who would usher in everlasting peace, not by means of a sword, but by means of his own blood. We read in Colossians 1, 19, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making 
peace by the blood of his cross. There can be no true peace apart from Jesus Christ. God had barred his people from the garden, and yet now through Christ he was working to bring them back in again. God showering his people with favor that they might join that angelic choir for eternity. This is the kind of peace that Christmas brings. And of course it was a peace that would resound in joy. It was a peace that would resound in joy. That's the second thing Jesus brings. He brings joy. Having received the joyful news, verse 16, we read the shepherds. What do they do? Well, with haste, they go look for Mary and Joseph and the child. You know, literally, they're like, what are we waiting for? And those shepherds, they would have hurtled stone walls and skipped across creeks like ancient masters of the steeplechase. They no doubt, they would have caused quite a ruckus. Bethlehem was a small town. There they are in the dead of night, banging on doors, waking up families, trying to figure out who this angelic host was speaking of. And until they found him. And then with excitement and glee, they would have tripped over one another as they told these exhausted new parents, Mary but a teenager, of their angelic encounter I would have laughed and smiled and dreamed over all that God might do through this child that looked nothing other than an ordinary helpless baby in a stinking feeding trough. But that's what Christmas is all about. It's about God bringing joy through the most unusual and at times challenging of circumstances. God would break into a world, a world shrouded by death and darkness, and he would usher in the light of his son. Joy would attend the announcement of Jesus' birth and of his earthly ministry. And joy would attend the conclusion of that earthly ministry. The very end of Luke, chapter 24, the last two verses, we read, as Jesus ascends to heaven, that the disciples worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Christmas, it fills us with wonder, doesn't it? It fills us with wonder. Festive downtown squares, the smell of a newly cut fir tree, those trees then glistening, with garland, plenty of goodies and eggnog, nutcrackers illuminated by soft fires, Bing Crosby on the radio, carols in the heart, and the anticipation of the Christmas morning. But that first Christmas had its own wonder, and quite a different wonder. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Right? Those shepherds, they didn't stop with Mary and Joseph. No, they evidently went around Bethlehem and who knows where else, telling of what had happened. They were the first evangelists. The first evangelists. They had come and seen the Lord's grace, and now they would go and tell of that grace to others. But wonder doesn't mean that all who heard believed. It only means they were intrigued. And whereas the masses will wonder 
for at least a moment, Mary, we see, is going to mull these things over for a lifetime. So what about you? What about you? Jesus' birth, in so many respects, was forgettable, even regrettable. No media hype, no royal attendance, no hospital nurses there, no regal outfits for those first pictures before the media, no millions waiting on pins and needles for the name of the baby boy. Jesus was born to a poor teenage girl and the equivalent of a factory worker in a small hamlet under the stiff boot of Rome. He had no bed. He had no swanky blanky. His only company were two exhausted parents, the pungent odor of manure, and a slew of despised shepherds rambling about excitedly. The contrast could not be greater. But that birth announcement that we've been studying, that tells the real story, doesn't it? An announcement punctuated by joy and an announcement that would promise peace. For on that night, heaven would erupt in song. There would be no Welsh lullaby, no Josh Groban. Heaven would erupt in song and an angelic army would gather at attention and pay homage to her king. Earth in that night would be awoken from her slumber all as that baby lay in a stall. The gift of one for all. Have you received that Christmas gift? Let's pray. Father, we glory at the incarnation. This is not how we would have written the story. But so much of the Bible unfolds in ways that we don't expect. It takes twists and turns that we cannot foresee. And yet behind it all, you are sovereignly working to bring about your good purposes. And it causes praise to well up in our hearts. And we pray that that would only continue. Only continue especially as as we move and as we reflect. Not just on your birth but upon your sacrifice for sinners and that blood that will be spilt and the way you would make peace through a cross. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.